first one is in Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll be reading verses 10 to 14. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come to me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And the next passage that we're going to read is found in Daniel chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 1 to 3, and then verses 20 to 27. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. And then we'll be reading verses 20 to 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death, and it will have nothing. The people of the rulers the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolation will have, have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end. That is decreed. That decree that is decreed is poured out out on him. Children go out. Let me say, um, if you ever get a chance to see the Mark drama or to get involved in the Mark drama, you really should. We we we, I've seen it about five times now. We it was actually last weekend. Uh, we had it at our church Saturday night and Sunday night to a packed house. Uh, it's just so powerful, just so impactful. Uh, both on the people who are actually taking part, but 
it's a really easy event to invite your not yet Christian friends to, uh, and uh, you know it's it's marks an action-packed gospel, and the whole performance is action-packed. It's just a marvelous experience. Um, look, and, and you shouldn't have any problem at all with the talent you've got in this congregation <laughs> to get involved with the Mark drama. Uh, I'm thinking of asking Harry and uh, Andrew if I can sort of subcontract them to help me write my sermons. <laughs> I mean, it takes me about 12, 15 hours to prepare a talk. <laughs> I think they did that in an afternoon yesterday. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's quite humbling, isn't it? Because they really got it right. And it was applied and it was powerful. Um, but what a great... Uh, we've had a great time here this weekend. Um, I've spoken at a lot of church camps over the years. This is an extremely well-organized church camp, so congratulations to the committee. Um, but also it's so encouraging to come and, and to find such a sense of community here, you know, because that that, one of the things that Christians do is gather, and, and you really gather well, you know, and there's such good interaction across the, the different age ranges, and uh, Jesus is building his church here, and it's, it's someone coming in from outside, it's something... Uh, that we can see and, and we're really encouraged by it. So we will, hopefully we'll continue to pray for you as uh, as, you, um, as you as you continue uh, to serve the Lord uh, at Surrey Hills. So this is the last talk for me, from me, and it's in Daniel chapter nine. Um, there's an, my name's David Jones, as you know. <laughs> You've probably been to my shop. <laughs> I, um, I once got, when I was living in Hobart, uh, I had a phone call um, in the middle of the night, actually, from a young guy in London uh, who was trying to, um, uh, trying to order some flowers for his mother on Mother's Day. And I think he must have asked the, the, the operator, is there a David Jones in Hobart? And they found my name. He was desperately trying to give me his credit card details. <laughs> Um, but in Wales, it's a real problem because nearly everybody else, everybody you meet is David Jones or John Jones or William Williams or Evan Evans. Or, uh, there's an extraordinary shortage of, uh, of last names in Wales. Um, and to avoid confusion, Welsh uh, people often add an occupation or a nickname. Uh, for example, Evans Above is the, is the local undertaker. <laughs> Um, Evans the bacon and Evans the end of the world. You know, one was the local butcher and the other the local minister. <laughs> and usually you can see the connection uh, between the name and the person. Uh, but in the village of Fanangaru, there was a man with the longest and most enigmatic of names. He was known as the Englishman who went up a hill and came down a mountain. I don't, I, 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 want, I don't know if anybody's seen that movie. It's like one of these Waking Ned Divine movies. It's really funny. I think it is anyway. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's an innocent story. It's, it's a story that's ba actually based on a true story. Uh, it's a bizarre story. And it's been made into a film with, with uh, starring Hugh Grant, amongst many others. Uh, it's about an English cartographer. You know what a cartographer is, a man who draws maps, basically. Um, uh, it's, it's about this English guy called Anson who was employed to draw maps in South Wales during the war. And horror of horrors, the villagers discovered that their mountain, of which they were very, very proud, uh, was technically not a mountain at all. It was a hill. 
it was 20 foot short of being classified on the Ordnance Survey maps as a mountain. And uh, that, that is a disaster in Wales. Here's a quote from, from the film. Uh, I, I, I was going to say I'll try and do it with a Welsh accent, but what else could I do? <laughs> uh, the, the Egyptians built pyramids, the Greeks built temples, and the Welsh, we have mountains. If this isn't a mountain, Anson might just as well redraw the border and put us in England. God forbid. <laughs> it's a very funny film, so if you can get it out, you can find it in a... There aren't any video shops these days, are there? Um, it's worth seeing. I won't spoil the, the, the movie for you. I just want to steal the title uh, for my talk this morning. Because it kind of describes what is going on in this chapter. Daniel is that man. Daniel is the man who goes up a hill but comes down a mountain. And those are the, the two points that I want to um, make this morning. I want you to see. I want you to see Daniel going up a hill, verses um, oh well, verses one to nineteen, the first half of the chapter. Basically, it's the hill of the Lord, as we'll see. But then, in, in that rather strange part of the chapter, verses twenty to twenty-seven, I want you to see that he comes down a mountain. Daniel's the man who goes up a hill but comes down a mountain. So let's, let's look at him, first of all, going up the hill. It's the hill of prayer. Look at verse 20. He says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. That's what he's praying for. That's the hill that he's talking about. Now, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Remember the psalm? Who shall stand in his holy place? It's the temple mount in Jerusalem. This is God's holy hill. Uh, now, it's interesting, you see, because Daniel hasn't lived in Jerusalem for nearly 70 years. Uh, the temple has been in ruins. It's been destroyed. Uh, and the priesthood has been discontinued. Uh, no sacrifices have been offered for, for 70 years. Daniel has lived in Babylon for the whole of his adult life, he's, he's now an old man, and yet his, his clock is still set to Jerusalem time. Look at verse 21. While I was still in prayer, he says, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. You can almost see him, you know, looking at his watch and saying, yeah, it must be the time of the evening sacrifice. But there haven't been any sacrifices for 70 years. You see, his, his clock is still set to Jerusalem time. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice. Yeah, it's See, Jerusalem was only a boyhood memory, but he's never forgotten it. And he's never lost the desire to go back there. He was just a young teenager, hardly a teenager when he was taken away from there. And for nearly 70 years, as we've seen, he's opened his windows towards Jerusalem. And he's been praying. Three times a day, he opens his windows towards Jerusalem. And what do you think he's been praying for? 
He's been praying for his return to Jerusalem. He's been praying that the temple will be rebuilt. He's been praying that the sacrifices will be reinstituted, if you like. That's the hill that he's climbing. That's what he's praying about here in this chapter. It's not God bless mummy and daddy. It's not any old hill that he's climbing. This is God's holy hill. And I just want you to notice how he prays. This is a model prayer, really. You notice that his prayer is rooted in the Bible, isn't it? Look at, look at how the chapter opens there. In, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Got that from my Bible, he says. So, so, so God's word, you see, spoken to the exiles through Jeremiah the prophet, has now been inscripturated. It was spoken first, but now it's been inscripturated. He said, I understood from the scriptures the word that the Lord gave to Jeremiah the prophet. Uh, that, that, you know, we, we had that, that passage read to us. And, and it's, you know, it's a very famous prophecy, isn't it? And, and people have ripped it out of context and put it on a fridge magnet with little fluffy sheep and all sorts of things. You know, uh, I have uh, plans for you to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. And, uh, you know, people have taken that verse and, and applied it to themselves, sort of willy-nilly, without any, uh, without any respect for the context in which it, is, it's, it comes from. That was, the, that was the prophecy of Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. I have plans for you. I haven't forgotten you. I, I've got a future for you. I've, there's hope for you. When those 70 years are up, I will bring you back from your exile. I'll end your captivity. And, and Jeremiah understood that from his Bible, do you see? And he takes that word from God and he turns it into prayer. This is the way to pray. E.M. Bounds has written many books on, on prayer. He says, the word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed, by which things are mightily moved. The word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed, by which things are mightily moved. See, that's what's going on here in this chapter. Jeremiah's 70 years are almost up, and there's no sign of God's people returning to Jerusalem, is there? D despite what the Bible says, despite... What God's word says, God's people are still in captivity. With, with no immediate or even remote prospect of getting home. Babylon has fallen. And it's the first year of Darius the Mede. And, it's, and you see, it's in that tension between what is promised in the word and what is happening in the world that prayer is born. It's in that tension. So, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That's what the word says. How many converts have you seen? I think you've seen a few. Why aren't people being converted in our churches? 
Even the, you know, the Geneva Push, the church planning movement will say, or the people that they've consulted have said, that even in new church plants, most of the growth is transfer growth. Very few conversions. And, and you see, we can shrug our shoulders and we can say, well, these are hard times and Australia's a hard place. We can do that. Or we can take God at his word. And we can plead that word. And we can pray it until we see it answered. God's word will not return to him void, Isaiah says. It will always accomplish what he purposes. There will always be fruit. And yet often there doesn't appear to be anything much happening. The Bible says that God's desire is for all, all people to come to repentance. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds to come to repentance. And yet the vast majority of people in our cities are just drifting along headlong to hell without a care in the world. Isn't that right? John tells us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And yet, sad to say, the spirit of the world seems to prevail over and over again, even in the church. So what are we to do? We could, we could shrug our shoulders and we can walk away. Or we can bend our knees and pray. That's what Daniel did. But there's a discrepancy between what's in Daniel's Bible and what he reads in his newspaper. <laughs> and it drives him to his knees. I think sometimes, you know, as Christians, either, we, either we're in our Bible too much and we never read a newspaper, or we read our newspaper all the time and not reading our Bible. We should do both, shouldn't we? As we saw yesterday, we are the salt. The salt has to be rubbed into. We have to be in the world in a very meaningful way, have relationships with people in the world. We need to know what's going on in our world. We, we need to read quality news uh, to understand what's happening in our world. And then we need to read our Bibles to, underst to, to understand it from God's perspective. And in that tension between what the Word says and what's happening in our world, it should drive us to our knees. That's what Daniel does. Verse 3, I turn to the Lord. I understood from the scriptures, and so I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. He gives himself to, to sustained, serious, disciplined prayer. He's an intercessor. That's what fasting means, really. It's not really about food. It's about concentration, it's about focus, it's about believing God's word and, and taking it seriously. You may not need to fast in terms of food, it's not that you can twist God's arm by going on a diet or something like that, he's not impressed by that sort of thing, you're not even the Daniel diet. <laughs> no, no, it's not about that. See, in mo most churches, I, I, I come around Australia, most churches don't have prayer meetings. Why don't they have prayer meetings? Because there's too much on in the church program. Maybe we need to fast from all the meetings that we expect people to attend at church. We, we have a monthly prayer meeting at, at, at Ann Street and uh, the first Wednesday of every month we cancel absolutely everything else on the program. Because we want the whole church to be in one place with one mind, pleading with God to do something. We're not seeing conversions. We can shrug our shoulders and say, well, yeah, it's not happening. 
Or we can bend our knees and pray and we can plead his word. That's what Daniel does, do you see? If I can make a practical suggestion, why don't you make the newspaper your prayer book and turn the headlines into prayer points? So that you feel the tension. Daniel's prayer is rooted in the word of God. And it rests in the character of God. Imagine you're, you're meeting someone at the airport. Uh, someone who fails to show up. I don't know if that happens to you. Uh, someone who's normally very reliable. Not some scatterbrain. Uh, so what do you do? You, you go to the airport. You park the car. Uh, you have to take a mortgage to park the car at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you wait, don't you? And, and you wait, I don't know if you've had this experience, until the last bag uh, goes round on the uh, carousel and then disappears. And then what do you do? Something must have happened. It's not like so-and-so. I mean, it's not like her. She, she would have phoned. She, she would have said something. She would have let us know. And then you're, so your concern shifts, doesn't it, from the, the inconvenience of a broken appointment and the, the irritation of having a wasted trip to the airport and the worry of having to pay a fortune for the car park to the person. What's happened? And that's what's happening here in Daniel's prayer. You see, the 70 years are up. Jeremiah's 70 years are, are, are up. But he doesn't mention the 70 years in the prayer. If you read through that long chapter, you'll notice he doesn't, he doesn't mention the 70 years. His concern now is with the character of God. That's the, that's the burden of his prayer. You read it later on today if you want to. See... His concern now is for God's name, for God's reputation, for God's honour. This isn't some casual acquaintance who's failed to show up. This is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Look at verse 4. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant with all who love him and obey his commandments. Lord, you said you'd be here for us. Where are you? What's happened? What's gone wrong? And of course the answer is there in verses 5 and 6. The problem is not with God. It's with us. And do you notice how Daniel includes himself in that? We have sinned, he says. We have done wrong. We have been wicked. We have rebelled. We have turned away. We have not listened. And so Daniel comes boldly, reverently, urgently confessing his sins and the sins of his people. And there's nothing automatic about these 70 years. He comes pleading with God to keep his promise, confessing and, and repenting. Listen to him, verses 17 to 19. It's very moving, this prayer. Now, our God, he says, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, for your sake, look, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and in here, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Do you see? 
The honour of God, the reputation of God, the name of God. Remember when people used to write cheques? I, I can't remember when I last wrote a cheque. Don't think I know how to anymore. You just tap these days, don't you? Remember what he used to say in the chequebook? Bear, pay the bearer on demand. <laughs> That's what he used to say. If you, if you read the small print, pay, pay bearer on demand. That's what Daniel is doing. That's what prayer is. He's asking God to honour his word. He's trusting in the character of God to come up with the goods. He's, he's pleading the promises of God. That's what it means to go up God's holy hill. Martin Niemöller was a leader with Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Confessing Church in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, as a result of his opposition to Hitler, he was sent to Dachau in 1938, where he remained as, as Hitler's personal prisoner until 1945. He narrowly escaped uh, execution, unlike his, his contemporary uh, Bonhoeffer. He, he, he just made it. And in, in his autobiography, he describes those first days in prison. He said, they, they took my wallet, my wristwatch, my wedding ring, and my Bible. That night I didn't sleep a wink. I didn't find any peace. I, I'd lost my memory during the very strenuous weeks of the trial. I couldn't remember a single verse. I was dependent on the printed page. I could only have my Bible, he says. The next morning I begged the warden to let me have my Bible. And his little pocket Bible was returned to him. And then he says this, he says, I had not been 12 hours in the concentration camp and the book entered, the holy book. The book that bears witness and testifies to whom all power belongs in heaven and earth. It was all that I needed. How do you cope? When you're the personal private prisoner of Adolf Hitler, you get your Bible out. How do you cope if you're an old man in exile in Babylon? You get out the word of God and you pray it through. That's what Daniel does here. That's what we, we need to do. In our, we're in Babylon. That's what we need to do. But we're far too busy, aren't we? There isn't a night in the week for a prayer meeting. Well, then maybe we need to fast. Maybe, maybe you need to give up that night in front of the telly. That's fasting, isn't it? In order to gather together with the people of God. Because we, we believe that he's the one who's in charge of the nations. He's the one who is bringing in his kingdom. And we, we, we take his word seriously and we, we plead it back to him in prayer. There's no kind of magic bullet about this, is there? There's, there's, there's no kind of secret. We've been always getting these nine things and these five things on the internet about, you know, your church. and It's the ordinary means of grace. It's prayer and the ministry of the word. That's how he brings his kingdom in. Corporate prayer. God's people coming together and, and pleading with him to carry out his purposes. Now then, let's look at what happens when you pray like that. Look at how Daniel's prayer is answered here. He's going up a hill. He's praying about God's holy hill. He wants to see the temple rebuilt. He wants the sacrifices reintroduced. He's, he's, he's praying for that. He goes up that hill. But then he comes down a mountain. Look at verse 20. 
and the verses that follow here. It's a bit complicated, but I, I hope I can get it across to you. And I, I, I think I understand what it's, I don't understand everything in these verses. But, but here's God's answer to Daniel's prayer. And it, it comes in a most interesting way. The angel Gabriel shows up uh, to give Daniel insight and understanding, it says there in verse 22, which is a bit ironic because what comes next is one of the most difficult to understand passages in the, in the entire book, isn't it? It's all sixes and sevens. <laughs> but, but look at verse 24. It's not, that's not difficult to understand, is it? Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy hill and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecies, and to anoint the most holy place. And how can you read those words without thinking about Jesus? That, that verse, verse 24, is as full as an egg with gospel, isn't it? 77, what does that mean? Well, it, it's not arithmetic. It's theology. In, in other words, the real answer to Daniel's prayer lies not in the immediate future, but on the distant horizon. There will be an immediate answer. But the real, ultimate answer is, is way off into the future for Daniel. Yes, God's people will return from exile. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. That's part of the answer that he's being given by Gabriel. In, in the very near future. In, in, in the sevens, if you like. In the very near future. Uh, God's people will be will return from exile and Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the temple will be restored and the sacrifices will be resumed. But that isn't the completion of all that God intends to do. The return from exile doesn't exhaust the promises of God. No, that hill, you know, the temple mounts, the sacrifices, the priests, that hill becomes a mountain. So to, to illustrate it, you know, if you're into bushwalking, and uh, if you, it's like climbing a mountain, only to find out that uh, the mountains in Wales are certainly like this. You, you think you reach the summit, and then when you get there, you realise it's one of the foothills. And uh, there in the distance, there's a mountain peak. You've still got a long way to go. And it's a bit like that's, that's the answer to, 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 to Daniel's prayer here. Way off in the distance, there is... Uh, after the return from exile, way off in the distance, there is a, a mountain peak reaching right up into the heavens, and God shows Daniel, 70 times 7 from now, something is going to happen. 70 times from 7 from now, a mountain. And on that mountain, there's a cross. And from that cross, Daniel can hear, echoing down the centuries, Tetelestai, it is finished. Look what it says in verse 24. God is going to do what? 70 times 7 from now, what is God going to do? He's going to make an end to sin. He's going to atone for wickedness. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal up visions and prophecies. He's going to anoint the most holy. That is monumentally significant, isn't it? That is the pinnacle of all God's plans and purposes for this world. 
That is the reality to which the temple and its priests and its sacrifices point. The cross. On the Mount of Crucifixion. Fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Daniel is given a glimpse of that as he wrestles with God in prayer. That's God's answer to Daniel's prayer. And you notice, not only does God point Daniel, as it were, to that far-off horizon, but I think, and maybe you know, this is a bit controversial, I don't know, but I think he actually gives him a pair of binoculars so he can get a, a closer view of it in verses 25 to 27. Know and understand that from the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Christ, that's what the word Christ means, Know this, Daniel, this is Gabriel giving God's answer to his prayer. From the time that goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. My math isn't very good, but I think seven and six, seven sevens and sixty-two sevens makes sixty-nine sevens, doesn't it? I think so. Is that right? Yeah. And the, it says the city will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, that certainly would happen when the exiles returned. They didn't have an easy path. There was opposition, but the temple was rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, despite the opposition. And, and that's going to happen, if you like, yeah, in, in the seven sevens, in the immediate near future. After the 62 sevens, that's much later on, the anointed one will be put to death. And will have nothing. Nowhere to lay his head. <laughs> All his friends will have run away and scattered. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy that city and the sanctuary. No more temple now. No more sacrifices since AD 70. And the end will come like a flood. War will continue, just as Jesus said. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. War will continue to the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an in the middle of the seven, so we're now in the seventieth seven, if you like, in the fullness of time. That's what seventy-seven means. It's you remember, it's, it's, it's not arithmetic; it's theology. But remember, Peter said to Jesus, "How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times." Jesus said, "No, seventy times seven. Did he mean four hundred and ninety times? He didn't. He meant you should forgive your brother continuously. You should forgive your brother completely, seventy times seven. And, 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 and so, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. On him! Don't get bogged down with the arithmetic of it. it, it as I say, it's, it's, it's not arithmetic, it's, it's theology. And so in the not-too-distant future, in the seven sevens, there will be an immediate answer to Daniel's prayer. God will end the exile, just as he promised. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, the temple will be restored, the people will return, the sacrifices will resume. But then 62 sevens after the seven sevens, the anointed one will come. 
the Christ, the Messiah. And in the fullness of time, in God's perfect timing, in that final week, the 70th seven, in the midst of that week, in the week that changed the world, look what it says, he will be put to death. We just sang about it, we just had it in the children's story. Literally, he will be cut off from the land of the living. <laughs> the anointed one will come and he will be cut off. That's the language of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant, he will be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And look what it says there in verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is, decreed is poured out on him. On him. Listen. Listen. Listen to that cry from the cross. We call it the cry of dereliction, don't we? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is... Surely that is the abomination of desolation, isn't it? God? Forsaken by God? Who can know it, said Luther? This is the heart of our faith. This is at the heart of the gospel. That's what Jesus must suffer to save his people from their sin. That is the end that was decreed for him to set his people free. He must be forsaken so that you and I are not forsaken. He must go into exile <laughs> to bring us back to God. And so by that one perfect offering of himself on the cross, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. No need. Read the book of Hebrews. No need now for any more sacrifices. Once and for all, he paid the price. So here's God's answer to Daniel's prayer. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. That's where we are right now. The end hasn't come yet. But in these days, these are gospel days. These are gospel opportunities. When, when, the, when God is shaking the nations, when there are natural disasters, and, and in these last days, while we're waiting for the end to come, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do I know that? Well, we have his word for it, haven't we? This is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We, we thank you that you... Reveal that gospel to Daniel in exile in a way that he perhaps couldn't possibly have understood so clearly as, as we do today. But we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the suffering servant. We thank you that he was willing to put himself in our place and, and be forsaken by you so that we might never be forsaken. Hard as the exile would have been for Daniel and for his compatriots, Lord, what Jesus suffered was far worse. And Lord, we cannot count the cost. We cannot, we cannot understand just what you went through. 
to put an end to our sin, to atone for our wickedness. But we thank you, Lord, that you did it, that you've now given us this sign and seal of the new covenant in the Lord's Supper, so that we may have assurance that our sins are forgiven. Lord, uh, we think of how Martin Luther used to say, you, you should live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow. And every time we gather around your table, Lord, that's what we remember, that Jesus died and that he rose and that he's coming back. And if we forget everything else, if we grow, grow old like Daniel and begin to lose our memory, Lord, let we, let we pray that we will never forget those truths, that Jesus died just as you prophesied and rose again You've vindicated your servant in the resurrection and he's coming back to bring in his, his everlasting kingdom. We pray, Lord, that everyone in this room might have a place in that kingdom. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.